Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at NortonSimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3 and LAist.com, also streaming on the LAist app. I'm Julia Paskin in for Austin Cross this Friday. It is great to be with you. Later this hour, I want to hear from you about the worst gift you have ever received. Sure, of course, it is a good practice to be grateful when we receive any gift, and very much so, the thought does count. But what about when somebody gives you a gift that just really doesn't demonstrate any thought at all? What are the thoughtless gifts from someone that maybe you might get that they thought knew you really, really well? What kind of damage can that do to a relationship when it doesn't really match up with what you thought you had? We're going to talk about it and take your calls on the worst gift you've ever gotten during the holidays. Plus, it is Food Friday, and we've got a double feature for you today. First, we are talking hot chocolate and where to get the best of it in Southern California. The owner of Amara Cafe here in Pasadena joins us, and she'll be sharing some of their signature Venezuelan hot chocolate. Plus, we're going to learn about the tradition of Sri Lankan Christmas cake from LAist reporter Yusra Farzan, who has a piece today at LAist.com sharing what the sweet treat and the holiday tradition of making it means to her and her family. That's coming up later this hour. But first, we begin with COVID-19 and a new variant called JN.1 that has been spreading through L.A. County. It's a subvariant of Omicron. The Centers for Disease Control say it's causing an estimated one in five infections nationwide. L.A.'s health reporter Jackie Fortier reports that this variant accounts for 10% of the cases in L.A. County in late November, which is the most recent data that we do have available. That's up from 1% in October. The good news is that the World Health Organization says the risk to the public is currently on the lower side, and the current vaccines do protect you from the latest variant. With us to talk more about the new subvariant, its spread through Southern California, and how you can make sure you stay healthy during the holidays, it's our one of our go-to COVID experts, Dr. Peter Chin Hong. He is an infectious disease specialist and professor of medicine at the UCSF Medical Center, and has joined us regularly over the last nearly four years to keep you in the know about the latest on COVID-19. Dr. Chin Hong, thanks so much for being back on Air Talk. Good morning, Julia. Thanks for having me on. Delightful to have you. Uh, and as always, uh, for folks listening, if you have questions for Dr. Chin Hong about this new subvariant, getting vaccinated, rises in COVID cases around the holidays, or just general questions about how to stay healthy through the holidays, you know, we've got things like RSV, flu, and nasty cold going around. We welcome your calls at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at laist.com. 
gmail.com. And just a reminder, we ask that your questions be of a general interest to a wider audience, not super hyper-specific to you. Well, Dr. Chin Hong is incredibly smart and always uh, is happy to try to answer your questions as best as he can. He doesn't have access to your personal health records or medical history, so do try to keep that in mind, please. So, Dr. Chin Hong, uh, tell us a little bit more about this new subvariant uh, and, and, and how it's related to Omicron. Yeah, so it's confusing to a lot of people because of the alphabet suit and numbers. Um, but to make it uh, easier and boil it down into basic blocks, the reason why people are looking at JN1 very closely is that it has a lot more mutations than what has been circulating around before. And its parent, uh, which was called Perula before, has more than 30 mutations compared to the XBBs. And the reason why that's important is because uh, our vaccine that's approved now is based on XBB, XBB 1.5, for example. So if you have something that's circulating that looks a lot different, the worry is not only that the vaccine may not work quite as well, but that people who got infected in the summer and fall when we had a last big increase in California, they would get really sick again. But so far, so good. It seems that A, the vaccine does have activity against this new variant, and B, that uh, the numbers of people getting sick, which is more than we would hope, is still not explained by um, you know having a, a new variant, like, for example, when we went from Delta to Omicron. And tell just let's 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 uh, zoom out for a second before I ask you more about this new subvariant. Where where are we generally in terms of of cases? Uh, it, it's it's I feel like for myself it's getting kind of hard to gauge because the beginning uh, a few years ago in 2020 the pandemic was so severe and now I'm not even sure if we, are we officially in an endemic. Uh, how how much am I supposed to still be worrying and and how high are rates uh, generally speaking? Yeah, that's a great question, Julia. So I think we can scope out and look at the deaths in the country as an example. So right now for 2023, so far, we've had about 60, 67, almost 70,000 people die in the United States. Last year, we had 246,000 people die. And in 2021, the, the peak of deaths in the United States, we had 460,000 people. So you can look at this as half glass uh, you know glass half full or half empty you know i think 67000 people so far is definitely nothing to celebrate it's something new that we didn't have in 2019 but it's a lot better from the previous few years in the united states are we in an endemic phase is that the correct term i think if we go through this winter and um you know it looks modest and you know we are not fueled by this new variant jn1 um, we could probably say that uh, we would expect every year a smaller summer increase and a larger winter increase. And the larger winter increase is accompanied by uh, influenza and RSV and other respiratory viruses. Okay. Let's get back to this uh, subvariant JN1. Are there any specific symptoms associated that could help the average person identify it, or would that need to be found out through testing? So right now, um, from people's observations of GN1, and, and even though the California numbers look very low, actually today the CDC updated their national report, and it's you know 44% of cases now GN1. And because there's a lag in sequencing and what's actually going on in the community, I would say that it's probably 
you know, 60, 70% right now uh, in California, in the United States, and it's highest in the Northeast. Um, in terms of symptoms, uh, it looks very similar to what people might have experienced as COVID. Uh, so you generally start off with a sore throat and then congestion and a dry cough, um, like the other Omicron flavors. And then you have the whole host of other symptoms you can get, including, I think, more attention to gastrointestinal symptoms like diarrhea, stomach pain. Um, uh, those may also be accompanied. And of course, some people are experiencing uh, loss of uh, smell in particular and um, a little less loss of taste. But those are the sort of spectrum. But it's kind of evolving into the because although most people have very mild symptoms, um, there are some people who uh, experience very severe symptoms. And I think that's that's the conundrum we are in now, I think, as a community, because, you know, it's not mild for everyone. And it's really difficult to kind of look around the room and say, okay, that person I should be more careful about versus just a regular interaction. And for some people, it's just the bad COVID we know about from a few years ago, which is increased shortness of breath, uh, need for oxygen uh, and you know that doesn't come initially you know you might have a week of mild symptoms and then after a week uh increasing that that need for oxygen i see okay um, oh, again, uh, we welcome your calls with questions about COVID for our expert, Dr. Peter Chin Hung uh, with UCFS Infectious, Infectious Disease Specialist uh, and a professor of medicine. We're here at 866-893-5722 or email our questions, your questions, I should say, to comments at laist.com. Please include your location and your first name. Uh, we have some questions here uh, for you, Dr. Peter Chin Hung. Jill Inventora uh, is asking, um, what do we know about the skin rash symptoms related to COVID? And uh, is that is the rash itself contagious? Yes, so that's a great question. Um, so far, we know that you can get a variety of different rashes from COVID. It's not terribly common, but some people can get spots, what we call a maculopapular rash on the body. Some people may have um, mucosal symptoms. That's in the moist part of the body, like in the mouth. Uh, and some people can have more serious disease. But in terms of skin disease, I would say, based on, on my experience, it's not very common. It's probably around 10% or less. And of course, early on in the pandemic, we heard about COVID toes and things like that, which happened after the infection. We've been seeing a little bit less of those over time, mainly because these flavors of Omicron probably unlocked the, the inside to go, get inside a little less efficiently. They stay more on the outside. But definitely some people may have um, not only uh, manifestations in the skin of COVID, the virus, but the immune response to fighting the virus. We're talking about the latest COVID numbers and how to best protect yourself with Dr. Peter Chin Hong as COVID numbers uh, have been uh, taking upwards here ahead of the holidays. Uh, Grace in Culver City is uh, uh, on or actually has called and asked the question. We don't have Grace on the line, do we? No. OK. Um, uh, Grace asked the question, do the current COVID tests work for the new variant? Yes, so, so far, all the information that we have is that the current tests do work for the new variant GN1 in the same way it's worked for the other Omicron flavors. Um, so I think the main pearl about testing, just to emphasize, is that 
if you get a negative test at the beginning, um, repeat it 24 to 48 hours after if your symptoms remain. And these days, if you have symptoms, uh, don't forget there could be other things. And the reason why testing is important, apart from you knowing what you have, is that you can have access to early therapy for COVID with Paxlovid or influenza with Tamiflu if you uh, know what you have. So the testing does work for free tests from the federal government, but there's a new program from the NIH that many people don't know about. It's called testtotreat.org uh, at the site testtotreat.org, and that's two numeral two. Um, and that's giving, giving free uh, COVID and influenza home testing for some people and free telehealth as well. It's a pilot program. It's kind of coming under the radar, but I think it's a really good program. Wow, I would love to be able to test myself for the flu as well. That sounds incredibly useful. Um, again, we are welcoming your calls and questions about COVID with our expert UCSF infectious disease specialist and professor of medicine, Dr. Peter Ching Hung. Our number is 866-893-5722 or email us at atcomments at laist.com. John in Fullerton has the question here, is there a version of Evusheld in the pipeline? line for immunocompromised individuals. John says that he had a severe reaction to Moderna and that his medical team has advised against further vaccination attempts. Can you also tell us what is Evusheld? I'm not familiar with that. Yes, so Evusheld is a monoclonal antibody that's long acting and was really helpful and, and, and a savior to many immunocompromised individuals because depending on how immune compromised you are, you can't make your own antibodies. If you remember Colin Powell who died, he had a disease called multiple myeloma that didn't uh, that shut down his antibody making cells. So the only way he can get protected uh, would have been to get something like Evushel, which is factory made or pre-made antibodies. The problem is that variants have evolved so much that all of the old antibodies and President Trump got one of those kinds early on. Um, that probably saved his life. Um, they, they've changed so that um, it's become very laborious to make new antibodies that lock and key to the variant circulating around. So far, there had been initial thoughts of making um, updated monoclonal antibodies uh, as a vaccine alternative that, that, the, that John talked about. But, um, you know, that has been kind of stalled uh, at the time um, for development. So I haven't heard anything much more with that recently. But in terms of severe reactions to vaccines like John experienced with an mRNA vaccine like Pfizer or Moderna, uh, I just wanted to remind everyone that there is another alternative, which is Novavax, which is also quite a very good vaccine. And my father-in-law, for example, had a bad reaction to an mRNA vaccine uh, but then he got uh, Novavax and he's been doing quite well. So that's something I would encourage John to speak to his clinicians about. Another question from Ben in Pasadena. Will the new nasal vaccines help lead to the end of COVID? And when can we expect to maybe see an end of this? Yes. Yeah, so there's been a lot of development of nasal vaccines um, over the last year or two, uh, more than 100 in development, including in the United States. The reason why a lot of people are hopeful about the nasal vaccines, they unfortunately not much more movement in that area um, yet, uh, is because, as people know, the vaccines are great for prevention of serious disease and death. 
and a short term good at preventing infection, but not long term. The vaccines will sort of give you boost boost that front guard um, defense against the virus. So it will be better, not just in supplementing, we hope the the injectables, depending on the formulation, but also preventing infection for a long time. So if everybody got a really effective nasal vaccine at the nose and the entry point, as well as a regular vaccine, you can imagine where you can stop transmission. But a lot of promising studies, but again, kind of very slow movement uh, of late. Okay. Um, uh, here's a, a good question. I encountered this myself. I found, uh, I guess, an, an old test that hadn't been used. If if a COVID test is dated for expiration, uh, one uh, or uh, for for this, basically, if a, if a COVID test is expired, can you still use it? Is it going to give you a reliable answer? That's a great and very uh, common question, Julia. So the first ad- piece of advice is definitely don't throw it away. Okay. Secondly, uh, go to the uh, you can just Google. Uh, uh, FDA website, COVID uh, expired tests or COVID tests, and it gives you by manufacturer updated uh, expiration dates by lot number. So you have your box, you look at the lot number and the, the company, you look it up on this uh, website and it, for, for the vast majority of cases, they have expiration dates have been pushed forward. Uh, and that's because of the way that they came up with the expiration dates for COVID tests in the first place, which is that only the time that uh, you have data for, uh, rather than a prediction like a carton of milk. So in other words, as we get more experience with the testing, um, the the dates have been pushed forward. So in most cases, uh, that test in your closet is still probably going to be good. Excellent. Okay, um, just a couple of minutes left, but, uh, you know, they've... We have revised the uh, procedures of what to do when we test positive a number of times over the years. Uh, we have a question from Mary in Seal Beach who asks, uh, she says she has, Mary has COVID right now and wants to know, is five days enough to quarantine with the new variant? So if you could let us know what we're supposed to do and does that still apply to the new variant? Yes, the, the rule of five days still applies. Um, and, you know, again, until day 10, you, you're supposed to be a little bit more careful, but you can leave after day five. And, um, you know, after 10 days, I generally don't advise people to continue testing unless you're not getting better. Okay. Um, uh, and here's a, it's an interesting question. Just real quick. Let's get this in here. Um, uh, Charles in Temple City asks, if the use of a neti pot to rinse one's sinuses help reduce the chances of contracting COVID. And for folks that don't know what that is, it's like a kind of old school little uh, little kind of mini teapot looking thing that you can rinse your sinuses with like a saline solution. Um, so does that help protect you? I wish it did. Um, oh, but hard. unfortunately, there isn't any evidence that it does. I will make you feel more comfortable and I guess that's another uh, segue to saying that, you know, for a lot of people, just controlling your symptoms is probably going to be the best treatment uh, unless you're eligible for Paxlovid. Okay. We had more questions from folks. Unfortunately, we do not have time to get to them, but thank you so much to everyone who sent in their inquiries today. Dr. Peter Chin, Chin Hong, it is always a pleasure to chat with you here on AirTalk. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Thanks so much, Julia. It was a joy. Dr. Peter Chin Hong is an infectious disease specialist and a professor of medicine at UCSF Medical Center and has joined us regularly over the last nearly four years to keep you in the know about the latest on COVID-19.
More to come in just one minute. We'll be hitting on the favorite subject of the season after the break. It's about presents, specifically the worst gifts you have ever received and what they might say about your relationships. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Julia Paskin in for Austin Cross. Back in a moment. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3. We are also streaming on the LAist app and LAist.com. Coming up a little later, my reactions to the warm and rich taste of local hot cocoa. Sometimes my job is just the best. But first, the holidays can be such a magical season of great food, time spent with family, and a season of gift giving. But how do you respond when a friend or a family member gifts you something That just gets you completely wrong. Most people say thank you and let the item collect dust, but the nagging feeling that a loved one doesn't know you at all can sometimes linger. So we're talking about the worst Christmas gifts you have ever received and how they made you feel. So I'd love to hear from listeners. Tell us about those weird novelty socks, although I I personally love a pair of novelty socks. We're talking about uh, talking fish heads, self-help books, or just anything that made you kind of recoil on the inside. And of course, we will say that uh, you know the gift uh, gift giving season uh, is hard, and uh, we don't want to be too hard on folks. So uh, we know being grateful is important, but um, you know we're looking for the stories where someone's like, "Wow, I've known you for twenty years. Have you ever met me?" So please uh, call us soon eight six six eight nine three five seven two two at comments at laist dot com. Um, we have a, a wonderful guest to help us unpack this conversation. Uh, Anna Goldfarb is a freelance journalist who writes about friendship and has a forthcoming book next year called Modern Friendships, How to Nurture Our Most Valued Connections. Anna, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. So can you start by maybe telling us about uh, a personal experience that you've had receiving a very bad gift? You know, my least favorite kind of gift is one without a receipt because then you're just (laughs) stuck adopting whatever random thing someone gifted you. And I especially don't like when people give me books without a receipt because I feel like throwing out a book is sacrilegious. And then I just adopt this random book and I carry it from like apartment to apartment forever and ever. So receipts are great. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, receipts are, are helpful, certainly. Um, and you can always donate a book that you're not going to read. Um, are there any, it's like, I'm just wondering, anything anything egregious, any kind, any maybe a, a particular book that you've received that you were like, this is not even a subject I would ever pick for myself? You know, you, it's really like, it says more about the gift giver than me. And usually, like, wildly off-track gifts are because the gift giver has no idea what the expectations are, what the budget is, what I'm interested in. Um, you know, of course, growing up, I always got socks for Hanukkah. And I'd be like, what is the point? Like, what is the point of this holiday if I'm just getting random socks? Like, there has to be more to, to this holiday. But um, yeah, just things like I, I'm not excited. I wouldn't be excited they got you kind of get deflated when you open them you're like oh really wow a crew neck sweater groundbreaking um just things like that and also things i don't have a receipt so i love when someone says listen i did my best effort here's the receipt if i missed the mark no hard feelings please feel free to return it and that is such a wonderful acknowledgement of hey i tried i thought of you but please, I want you to have the best gift that you that you would want. And that's my ultimate goal. So you can always hedge a bad gift with like, listen, hashtag I tried. Um, but please do not do not feel bad about returning it or exchanging it. I encourage you to do that because the goal is for you, the gift receiver, to be happy. That's what's important to me. It's not so much what the present is. It's that I want you to be happy. I'll share um, a, a story. Um, a loved one uh, once regifted me something that I had given her uh, about a year prior, <laughs> and um, it's funny now, but at the moment, it it kind of stung. Oh my god, it's mortifying. Yeah, it did. <laughs> so and, and, she, and this person was a classic regifter, and I think you know, I think regifting is great. I have no, no problem, but it was just, it hurt, I think it hurt my feelings. Was first of all, it said something like it had like a message on it, like "I love you" or something kind of sentimental. But also, you know, it was like you obviously don't remember that I gave this to you. Like, fine, if you didn't want to keep it, but I I think that's what hurt my feelings. Was I being a little too sensitive there? Because a few years later, I'm thinking, you know, it's a lot of pressure. She probably had a lot of people she was thinking about, and she just didn't want to forget me and gave me this nice thing. I mean, I picked it out. I guess I liked it. <laughs> you have great taste, apparently. There you go. Um, I can see why it would sting, especially if gifts are your love language. A lot of people mm. take a lot of pride. They spend they They spend a lot of time trying to pick the most researchers call it the smile seeking motive they want that gift that's going to blow your hair back that's going to be like a new car oh my god a puppy like they want to just blow you away but um studies show that those gifts are the most risky um those are the ones that gift receivers don't enjoy receiving as much because they have the experience of owning the gift they want something that's going to be a joy useful versatile to own um i think of people you know everyone was baking bread during the pandemic we all we all have our like stuck at home and the person gifting oh you love bread i got you a bread maker and the gift receiver might be thinking well i live in a tiny apartment and if i wanted a bread maker i would have gotten one and what do i do with this bread maker now that i don't have space for it like people Get their, get their wires crossed all the time with gifting like that. Like, oh, I know you're into whiskey. I got you whiskey. And the whiskey enthusiast is like, oh, I don't like this 
this isn't the kind this I bottom shelf stuff like <laughs> right so there's all these landmines of well let me try and guess what you're gonna enjoy and most of the time we get it wrong um people okay. are not mind readers we have very little idea of what someone else is fantasizing about wanting i mean studies show people are more appreciative of a gift that they've already asked for because they've already fantasized about owning it like think about a perfume like i want this perfume this perfume smells so good i can't wait to have it i'm gonna wear it to every holiday party and they get some other kind of perfume like oh i know you like perfumes it's like oh well, i wanted the one that i wanted i didn't want mm. just any random perfume um that's where these um these these gifts can go wrong very quickly Okay, I'm trying to figure out how to unpack this um, comment uh, here. I don't, can I even say, I'm looking at a producer. Can I even say this word? Uh, uh, okay. Um, so is this a comment from you, Matt? Okay, this is a comment from our senior uh, producer on Air Talk, Matt D'Angelo Antonio, who says, um, my mother-in-law got me a body hair trimmer from a company called Ballsy, B-A-L-L-S-Y. Uh, the gift itself was very ah. useful, but Matt says, uh, I can't say I was super excited to be thinking of my mother-in-law every time I was doing personal grooming. This is a uh, horror story. This is a complete <laughs> horror story. This is a, that is just... Wow. Um, uh, okay, but Matt does say old. that it's very on brand uh, and that she's kind of twisted. Like, So it sounds like you actually lucked out, Matt, with a, um, a mother-in-law with a good sense of humor. So even if it's a bit uncomfortable, um, is that something to think about in terms of appropriateness um, and maybe even sometimes uh, who might be around when a gift is opened? Oh, 100%. I just did this um, yesterday with my best friend. I got her some CBD teas like um, to help with sleep. I know she has trouble sleeping. Um, she said she's been getting into tea lately. She got a new tea kettle. So I thought, oh, what can I get her for the holidays? I'm like, well, let me get her some like teas. Um, putting my research to work. And I got her some CBD teas and I gave them to her yesterday. I said, I don't want you to open this around your kids. Like, I don't want it to be weird. Um, so I gave her a heads up of, mm. I'm thinking of you. I know you like tea. I know you have trouble sleeping. I got you some sleeping teas. Um, and it was a sec successful gift, but I also navigated, um, who she could potentially be opening the gift around. Um, I think that's very smart to just have some awareness around, especially for anything sort of edgy or, um, not child appropriate. Good advice. Good advice. Okay. Um, we have uh, Sophie from Playa Vista uh, on the line who has a story about uh, a gift from your dad. Sophie, tell us what happened. Oh, yeah. It was when I was young and my dad had never gotten me a gift my whole life. Um, so he did get me a gift one Christmas and I was super excited to open it. And all it was was a bag of rubber bands, like office rubber bands, plain old brown rubber bands. Um, and it was just a huge letdown because I thought maybe he actually cared one year to do something and he didn't. It turned out it was just rubber bands so that I could connect a sponge to my violin that I was, that I've been practicing. And that still to this day is the only present he's ever gotten me. Tell us how, you know, what, what is the impact of that kind of dynamic have on you? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like you've been talking about where it just makes you feel sort of like um unnoticed or unknown or you know like especially when you're supposed to have you expect to have a good relationship with somebody and they get you something that just is so disconnected from anything you could actually want 
And it just seems like, you know, truly a convenience present. Like he might have picked it up at the gas station on the way home or something. It was, it still, you know, obviously it still lives with me. Um, <laughs> and I hear a little one in the background. I imagine that you you think about that in, in you know, thinking about the people you care for, right? Oh, certainly. And I recognize as a parent, it's like so hard to buy gifts. Um, but that's part of the, you know, the value of it, right? Like you do something really hard and you think about it and you go out of your way to get something that means something. So I think it was particularly let down because it was my dad. It wasn't just like a, you know, a kind of casual acquaintance getting me a bag of rubber bands. Yeah. I hear you. Well, I have a, go ahead. I have a, a very different read on that, Sophie. And I think a lot of people are not socialized or taught how to give gifts. And a lot of men, in my experience, are completely clueless. My dad also never got me gifts growing up, and I completely relate to you. Um, it, what, what your story says to me is your dad was thinking about you and wanted to give you something useful that you will use every day. Um, and he was just clueless of where to, to start. Um, he was thinking about you. And I lost my dad two years ago, and he never gave me any I don't have any presents to look at of like what he gave me. Um, and that's his attempt, his clumsy, clumsy dad attempt at getting you something. And, um, you know, he just didn't know. He didn't know better. We're not taught these things. You know, a lot of it's trial and error. And he might have been ashamed of not knowing how to get gifts, too. That is, that is a good That's point, Anna. Yeah, I, I yeah. have seen that, I mean, in my own family dynamics as well, that, uh, you know, it's that meme I see on the internet all the time of, like, um, you know, the, the dad, it, we're talking about, like, a heteronorm, heteronormative kind of relationship, and, like, you see a dad just as excited to see the kids open the gifts because m- mom obviously did all the shopping. Like, that's, yeah. that is that is kind of a thing, and hopefully we're all we're all kind of growing out of that. Um, and Sophie, hope that you've had a lot of uh, good Christmases since then uh, to kind of make up for, for that sting. Um, thank you so much to everybody who yeah. called in. And, and who emailed. Um, and also, thank you so much to Anna Goldfarb, freelance friendship journalist and author yeah. of the 2020, it's a very cool title, by the way, 2024 book, thank Modern you. Friendship, How to Nurture Our Most Valued Connections. Look out for that coming out next year. Uh, and thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Julia. After happy, the, happy holidays. Happy holidays. After the break, um, I think I just felt a little cold snap in the studio, which means it's time for some hot chocolate. Stick around. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org.
Welcome back to Air Talk. This Friday, I'm Julia Paskin in for Austin Cross. And it's Friday, so of course that means Food Friday here at LAist. And today we are fortunate it is a double bill. In a few minutes, we'll be talking about a beloved Sri Lankan holiday treat. But first, let's get a little cozy. Imagine you're decked out in flannel, sitting by a roaring fire as snow gently drifts down outside. Yeah, I know we're in California, but just go with it with me, folks. In this scenario, there is only one beverage that will do. That's right. We're talking hot chocolate. And I'm lucky to have with me a master of the craft, Amara Barroetta, chef and owner of Amara Cafe in Pasadena, just down the street here from us at LAist. Amara Cafe features prominently in a piece up on LAist.com today called Five of the Best Hot Chocolate in L.A. to warm up your chilly days by the intrepid Ashley Rush. I definitely recommend checking that out at LAS.com. Monitor, welcome. Thank you, Julia. So it's tell a us. Pleasure. Th- we're so happy to have you. And I'll just say that whatever you have brought in here, it's a, it looks like hot chocolate and churros. It is. It looks amazing. Uh, so we're going to try that in a second. But uh, first, I, I want to ask you about your business. Uh, tell us about Amada Cafe and, and what's your story? Well, you know, we've been open here in Pasadena since 2012. And this is such a beautiful community. You know, it's the perfect mix of like residential and people who work in the area. And we're a Venezuelan cafe. So, you know, the Venezuelan community in uh, in L.A. is not as big as like south of Florida. But um, we have become like this little spot where people, you know, can find some of the um, traditional goodies that they want. And of course, um, many people think of chocolate and they think, Belgian chocolate, but actually cocoa, like the greatest cocoa, comes from 20 degrees over or under the equator line. Mm. Of course, Venezuela is one of those places. So, mm-hmm. Excellent. Tell us about uh, how your love affair with chocolate began. Well, uh, growing up in Venezuela, uh, you know, we had these beautiful, you know, uh, plantations of cocoa, like, you know, and we grew up like drinking chocolate. But the chocolate we drank was like less sweet and more like into that deep, rich flavor. And it's something that you're going to try, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I fell in love with it. So I'm a chemical engineer by train. That's that's my profession. Wow. But yeah. And, you know, I always was drawn into like looking for ways to make chocolate you know, bright in any dish. And that's how the passion for cooking came. And I always had this idea of opening up something like Amara's. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, okay, so tell us about your hot chocolate recipe. And I'm, I'm looking at the cup here. And I think what catches my eye so much is is how thick. Um, and you said drinking chocolate. Is that different than, you know, kind of the American hot chocolate? I'm thinking of like the, the instant <laughs> stuff that just kind of is watery. Like this is not that. This is, yeah. this is, luscious in, in comparison so tell us tell us about that yeah well you know the venezuelan sipping chocolate I, I think it's a it's inherited from that spanish tradition of like you know thick hot chocolate so we make it that way like really rich and luscious but it has that deeper like cocoa you know like cocoa powder or and, and like cocoa mat um like richness to it you know so i think that makes it different because the bite of the hot chocolate is so, so different. And of course you get all the good stuff, you know, the antioxidants and and everything. And it's a little less sweet than like regular American cocoa. So usually American cocoa, it's basically like some sort of like cocoa powder with like sugar and water or milk, right? And you, you know, make it simmer and you add that and that's it. In this case, you have to like cook the cocoa and it has like uh, the cocoa butter, which is, you know, like the, the, 
the fat from yeah. the cocoa beans, which is actually great for your skin. <laughs> does that how does that give it some of that extra body, the cocoa butter? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. I, I got to take a sip of this. Please. Yeah. And so, you know, it's inspiring those European traditions. Um, in Venezuela, we had, you know, a big immigration and, you know, like a big um, Spanish influence in all of our cooking. And so definitely this is a staple for um, cocoa. That's that's how we would have hot chocolate. So if, if a Venezuelan take a sip of like what Americans drink as hot cocoa would be like what is this horribly disappointed but I know (laughs) exactly but the other way around it's also you know something interesting because you know not everybody it's ready for that so you're expecting your hot cocoa and then you get this and you're like what yeah it it coats the cup it's very thick but my goodness is this delicious this is like a whole uh it like a a full mouth experience uh yeah this is really yeah if you have not had this kind of um truly deep rich hot chocolate folks you're missing out um time to get off of the what is Swiss Miss. Sorry, don't sue me, Swiss Miss. Uh, but there's more out there, uh, such as the Amada Cafe. Um, we are unfortunately running out of time. I could talk to you about chocolate for hours. Um, yes. uh, but again, um, we are speaking with um, Amara Barueta, chef and owner of Amada Cafe on Raymond in Pasadena. So please stop by and try some of this delicious hot chocolate. Also, these churros look amazing. I'm going to try some of these a little bit later. But the, just the texture, the look, it looks, looks picturesque. Perfect. Um, Amada, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Julia. My pleasure. More Food Friday coming up in a moment. This is AirTalk. I'm Julia Paskin. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3. I'm Julia Paskin in for Austin Cross. We continue with our Food Friday double feature and turn our attention from hot holiday drinks to Christmas cake. More specifically, Sri Lankan Christmas cake. So back when British, the British ruled Sri Lanka, or uh, Ceylon as it was known at the time, British colonizers brought with them the Christmas tradition of making fruitcake packed with candied orange peel, uh, glazed cherries, uh, stuff like that. But over time, Sri Lankans took the traditional recipe and made it their own, adding ingredients like preserved ginger and green vegetables. Um, and uh, let's not forget about the copious amounts of brandy. And as LAist reporter Yusrat Farzan describes in her latest piece at LAist.com, where she wrote about Sri Lankan Christmas cake and the islanders' tradition of making it, which we've learned is quite an undertaking. Yusra's piece is titled Four Sri Lankans in L.A. It isn't Christmas without their traditional decadent spicy Christmas cake. And she joins me this morning to tell us about this Christmas tradition and the making and sharing of this cake. Yusra, welcome. Thanks, Julia. Thanks for having me. Just going to give you a shout out. You've been doing reporting for us at LAist for a little while now, and you're just doing a great job. So thank you for everything you contribute to our newsroom. Um, So, okay, tell us a little bit about the history uh, of this cake um, and how did it really become like a long term Christmas tradition in Sri Lanka? Yeah. Um, so like you mentioned, when the British colonized Sri Lanka, they brought this, fr- they brought fruitcake to their island. Um, and, you know, from my research, what I've come to understand is a lot of the schools in Sri Lanka, even though Christians make up 7% of the population, a lot of the schools are run by Christians. So a lot of Christian traditions sort of seeped in, you know, into sort of like our daily life and as did this cake. Um, so come Christmas time, 
actually not just Christmas time. We we like an excuse to make this cake any time of the year, especially during weddings or like special occasions like that. But especially for Christmas, um, it sort of kicks off the season with this cake. Um, and I think it's from when the British came over and then Christmas traditions because of the schools in the country. Gotcha. And um, do you have a personal connection to this cake? Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, so my earliest memories of this cake was going with my aunt to Gawface Hotel, um, where they would have these massive wooden barrels, almost the size of this table in front of me, um, where we'd have the chefs and, you know, people with at the hotel, all of these invitees, they just come together to mix the fruits. It's like a cake mixing ceremony where they invite people to just to kick off Christmas season. Mm. Um, so they'll be pouring the brandy, they'll be pouring the rum and then just mixing uh, the fruit mix with wooden paddles, not even spoons, just because it's this massive barrel. That's how big it is. You need a, parrel, a paddle like you would for a boat. Yes. <laughs> Yes, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, and and uh, what about the eating of the cake? Is that a thing that you have an emotional connection with too? Yeah. Um, as I you know wrote in the story, it's it's pride of place at Christmas uh, breakfast tables. Um, so people usually you know start off Christmas morning by having a piece of the cake. I love to have it with a cup of ginger tea. Um, that's how I enjoy it with you know Sri Lankan plain ginger tea and then a slice of the cake. I kind of eat it all through the day, not just during breakfast time, just because I enjoyed so much. <laughs> I don't hold that against you at all. Um, uh, so there's a couple of um, uh, examples in front of me right now. Um, can you tell me what I'm looking at here? Yeah. So I uh, so two of the people that I spoke to, Samia Dharmasiri Wardener in Canoga Park and Anne Reduka Pereira in Santa Clarita. That's a Sri Lankan auntie thing. Anytime you speak to them, they want to share food with you. Oh, wow. So they gave some cake um, for us to, sh- you know, for me to share with um, everybody here at the studio. So what you're seeing in front of you is, you know, their versions of the cake. Um, so everybody sort of has like their own way of doing it. Samia doesn't have their marzipan topping and um, cake has the topping. Yeah. That's the big difference that's, here. Yeah. There's there's like a, uh, like a that's the, the topping, the mm-hmm. white topping is marzipan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then how do you think that changes the the uh, the experience having that extra layer? Should I should we find out? Yeah, go for it. All right, let's see. Let's see how we can do this um, expeditiously. Yeah. And um, some of the ingredients in the cake are native to the country. So you have Sri Lankan pumpkin, which is not like American pumpkin. Oh. It's white in color with a green flesh. And then chayote squash, um, which is popular in Latin American countries. That's used in the cake as well, candied um, chayote squash. I've never tried So taste that. it. That's so cool. Okay. It yeah. Also, it just it smells amazing. I mean, all of the spices, it just... It's also very boozy. You've been warned. Oh, my. So, okay. So if I start slurring a little bit, we'll know why. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. The ginger is so prevalent. I can see why that would pair really well with the tea. That is delightful. Um, um, give me a second. T- t- talk to me for a second here while I chew. <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, Sri Lankan diaspora here in Southern California. And then um, after uh, that, we can try the other piece. Yeah. Um, so Southern California actually has the second highest Sri Lankan population in the country mm. after New York. And a fun fact that I learned at dinner yesterday uh, is that there are now seven and um, Buddhist temples in Southern California that are run by Sri Lankans. So Sri Lanka is a predominantly Buddhist country, but as I mentioned in my story, we're also a very religiously tolerant country. Um, So everybody sort of enjoys this cake, all faith groups. um, And Christmas is sort of a time for everybody. Um, 
and just all of the religious festivals, you know, everybody sort of celebrates them. Um, and as you try the cake as well, I'm sure you'll get a lot of the spices. Um, that's something. Mm. Yes. The cinnamon, cardamom. Are you getting any of those? Is there almond in this as well? Yes. Is that the marzipan? The almond essence. So, oh, my yeah. goodness. It is yeah. so good. Yeah. These are both very different. Yeah. But very delicious. And so that's the other thing as well. Everybody sort of has their unique way of making it. Um, they, you know, they all have this traditional methods of doing things. Um, so Samia told me that once the cake is baked, it's crumbed where it's broken into tiny pieces. And then she mixes it um, for about a week, you know, in an airtight conta- container. She keeps mixing it for about a week. Now, Anne Renuka Pereira adds jam to her mixture, um, mm. sort of get it extra moist, you know. So everybody has their unique style, and that's what makes the cake so special. I love that. Um, uh, can you give us some recommendations on places in Southern California uh, where folks can uh, try this for themselves? Yeah. Um, so there's Baja Subs, which is a Sri Lankan restaurant in the Valley in Northridge. You can actually buy the cake there. Okay. Um, and tell us a little bit more about uh, how Christmas is shared. You mentioned Sri Lanka being a very faith-tolerant uh, country. That sounds pretty cool to me. Sounds like what we try to strive for, but not necessarily always achieve here in the U.S. Um, so uh, can you talk to, us about, talk to us about sharing that with people that don't have the exact same faith? Yeah, food is one of the ways that we share of, uh, you know, share different faiths in the country. Um, when I was talking to people in the Talking to people for my story, and I thought this was something that was just very unique to me and then my family. Uh, but I, you know, I, I came to realize this is something that all Sri Lankans share. Mm. So during every religious holiday, people sort of just share food with their neighbors, with their friends. Um, some of my earliest memories, you know, during Buddhist holidays, was going with friends to Dansals, which are these food stalls where food is given out for free. So you'll just be walking on the street and there are stalls set up and you just get food for free. So they're just trying to feed you. Um, and then come Christmas time, you know, you'll get the Christmas cake um, and then brew there, which was from when the Dutch colonized us. Um, and then when Muslim festivals come around, you know, you get their, um, you get biryani and watlapam, which is like a jaggery custard. Mm. And then during Hindu festivals, you go out to see the veil cart, which is this really beautiful, intricately, you know, it's an intricate wooden cart that's decorated with fresh flowers. And you always enjoy a vegetarian meal. So food sort of is, you know, part of all of our celebrations and we all sort of enjoy it together. Oh, wonderful. Isn't that just, to me, that is the... The unifying thing between any any culture, any tradition, any faith, it is food. And it is amazing how it can bring us together. So thank you for sharing this with us. Thank you for sharing your story on LAS.com. Um, again, uh, the uh, piece written by Yusra Farzan at LAS.com is called For Sri Lankans in L.A. It isn't Christmas without their traditional decadent spicy Christmas cake. And I guess as far as uh, fruit, fruit, because this is technically a fruit cake, right? Fruit cakes get a bad reputation. These are delicious. So if maybe you want to kind of redefine your relationship with fruitcake. This might be the way to go. Um, it's definitely a step up and no no shade to the Brits, but um, it's a step up. I'm definitely going to say this, uh, the, the, uh, the, the fusion of the flavors really does um, make for a lovely experience. And it's gluten-free.
It's gluten-free. Oh, my goodness. Amazing. Again, uh, this is LAist reporter Yusra Farzan. Uh, read her piece at LAist.com. Yusra, thank you so much for being with us and sharing the tradition, and happy holidays. And to you, Julia. Thank you. This is Air Talk here on LAist 89.3. I'm Julia Paskin. I've been in for Austin Cross on this Friday. Air Talk is produced by Lindsay Wright, Lucy Kopp, Manny Valladares, and Michael Goldsmith. We had help this week from Daniel Martinez. And as we end the year, we also want to shout out to our other on-call producers that help us on on air talk that's sonata sonata lee uh narciss ashley rush caitlin Plummer, and peyton seda our prentice news clerks are tamar fagan and jason rodriguez our technical director is evelyn bocanegra and our senior producer is matt d'angelo antonio have a wonderful holiday weekend and end of 2023 we will see you next in 2024 film week with larry mantle is up next Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, The Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez, inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price. After escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, and so excited. It's the final film week of 2023. Jam-packed wall-to-wall with reviews. We have so many films to talk about being released in the last two weeks of the year. And to take us through all of these high-profile films, Amy Nicholson, who is film writer for the New York Times and host of the podcast Unspooled, Manuel Betancourt, contributing editor at Film Quarterly, and Charles Solomon, animation historian and author and uh, critic for Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. We begin with Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, the action-adventure film returning Jason Momoa as Aquaman, James Wan, the director, uh, also uh, the screenwriters and Include Juan and Momoa and David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick. Amy, please tell us about Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. I will. Um, this is sort of the last and in the incarnation of the DC Comics superhero universe that we've had for about the last decade. They're probably going to shut the whole thing down, reboot again from the beginning with like new players for all of these parts. Um, but of course, they've got to go out with like one more Aquaman because the first one, when it was made in 2018, made over a billion dollars and it feels like we got to make this sequel but they made this sequel maybe not completely getting what people liked about the first one people saw this first one and the main thing they talked about when they came in or came out was like this six second shot of an octopus playing the drums you know just this little weirdness (laughs) of this aquatic world and in this movie they bring back the octopus but they don't let him play any drums he's just an octopus 
taking part in yet another heist. This movie is nothing but like back to back heists. We got to go here. We got to go get this thing. We got to go somewhere else. Blah, blah, blah. Repeat, repeat, repeat. I mean, I do say that I like Momoa in these movies. He has this kind of like easy dude bro charisma. He plays this superhero kind of like he's the dude in Big Lebowski. He wears a bathrobe for like a big quarter of this movie. But then he's also got this like 50 inch chest. He looks like a superhero just kind of naturally, just sort of effortlessly. And then when he puts on the shiny suit, takes off the bathroom, puts on the shiny suit, you're like, that is a man with a lot of abdominal muscles. Um, I like the design of this movie. I like the casting of it. You know, I like seeing Dolph Lundgren stand around in an armored toga talking about like ancient Atlantean sonar equipment which if you're wondering what that is, that's whales. Um, <laughs> you know, I like seeing like him piling around with Jonathan Reese davies who's like voicing a giant crab. I really just wish this movie was allowed to get goofier without feeling obligated to hit all of these like expected superhero beats, you know, the battles and the threats of the end of the world and all of the explosions. I felt like when I was watching this movie, I would just see some cool design underwater that I wanted to take a better look at, and then it would explode. And that got really, really frustrating. Um, and also, I feel like this movie has to be the last time that any character walks around with Born to be Wild as their theme song. I just cannot take it anymore. Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, starring Jason Momoa, Patrick Wilson, Amber Heard, Ben Affleck, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, and Nicole Kidman, directed by James Wan. It's rated PG-13 in wide release. All of Us Strangers is written and directed by Andrew Hay. It stars Andrew Scott, Paul Meskel, Claire Foy, and Jamie Bell. Manuel. This this is absolutely one of my favorite films of this entire year. Uh, it's this touching, soulful, haunting kind of love story that follows um, the screenwriter who's living in mostly in a, an abandoned building, like no one's yet moved in. And he makes a connection with a very sexy stranger. Uh, and also eventually ends up uh, meeting his young parents who had died in a car crash decades earlier. And we're not quite sure how this is happening. But the conversations he gets to have with his mom and his dad uh, and with this stranger end up all circling around how we can move on, how we deal with grief, how we connect with others. Uh it's it's beautiful. It's heartrending. Andrew Scott, who plays the lead and who people might know as the hot priest from uh, Fleabag, uh, provides this like beautifully layered performance of what it means to be a gay man who's trying to untangle his grief for his parents and his loneliness uh, and trying to turn it into art. And it's I. I, I, I was in tears the first time I watched it. I was in tears the second time I watched it. I'm like choking up even thinking about it now because I think it's just, um, it features one of the most intriguing and surprising coming out scenes in recent American cinema. I can't think of a better film to be recommending this week than All of Us Strangers. Wow, that's high praise. All of Us Strangers from writer-director Andrew Hay. Amy. Yeah, Manuel's really right. This film is just absolutely stunning. I mean, it is mostly done with just like people having conversations, you know, but the conversations illustrate so much about generation gaps just in the, the life that we've all been here. You know, his parents died right before the kind of relative enlightenment we're living in now, and they have a lot of questions. You know, they mean well, but they ask some <laughs> things that are sort of rude that he has to kind of like explain. And meanwhile, he's having this kind of 
strange relationship with his younger neighbor who's raised in a slightly more progressive moment. But you also get the sense from the way that he's talking that while attitudes might have changed on the surface, he doesn't seem that much happier. You know, and so it's it's a really fun little thorny movie. You know, when his parents are asking him questions like, why are you so isolated? Is it because you're gay? The answer to that, I think, is very complicated. You know, very complicated. Like, how was he raised around them? How is how is he finding his place in the world? You know, it, it's a chilly movie, but you really do grow to care about all four of the characters. And the ending, which I will mm. not say anything more about, yeah. I will just say that it is a very romantic and sad gut punch. It, yeah. it sounds so nuanced and layered and that it's even difficult to explain fully why it's such a moving film. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it, it does come down to the amount of emotion these four actors, so Claire Foy, Jamie Bell, Paul Mescal, and Andrew Scott, they, they really are doing a lot um, between the lines and trying to capture this mixture of love and grief and anger and frustration, but there's also a tenderness and, and sort of it's it's, uh, it's it's a movie that's brimming with emotion without being sentimental. And I think that's such a fine line to tread that I'm, I was just, I continue to be in awe with what Hay did. All of us strangers, Andrew Hay, the writer-director, Andrew Scott stars in the film. It's rated R and you can see it at the Landmark Theater Sunset in Hollywood, the AMC Century City 15, and then beginning January 5th, it expands into more theaters. Uh, All of us strangers has also been nominated for three independent Spirit Awards, including Best Feature, Best Director, and Lead Performance for Andrew Scott. Migration, an animated adventure in wide release. It's written by Mike White and directed by Benjamin Renner and Gilo Holmesy. Charles, what did you think of Migration? This is not the worst animated film of the year, but it is <laughs> the biggest disappointment. Uh, Benjamin René, he's French, uh, directed a couple of years ago the hysterical and charming Big Bad Fox, Le Grand Renard Méchant. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, that we all loved. It was made really on fun. a shoestring. It was hysterically funny. And he fell into the abyss of illumination. This is about a family of ducks. They've never migrated because the father is overprotective. They're safe on their lake. He doesn't want their kids to go out and, and possibly get into trouble. And then they set out on a journey to the Caribbean. And, gee, he's still the overprotective father, and he won't let his children do anything, and they have to prove themselves when they get into trouble. I mean, where have we seen that story before, and how many times? Um, it's also a nonstop talkathon. These birds never shut up. And a duck bill is really difficult to try and do lip sync with in 3D CG. It's it just doesn't assume the shapes that your mouth does to form the vowels, so it's strange looking. You know, with with Daffy or with Donald, it's drawings you can distort them. You're only seeing them from one perspective, but with something 3D, you're aware. How is that flap thing going? So just so disappointed because we expected Rene to continue to be as funny and imaginative. Uh, as he had been at that film. Um, but this is what happens when you go to work for a, a you know a big studio, I guess. Well, and, and with uh, a screenwriter like Mike White, who's done The White Lotus, of course, the very popular and acclaimed television series, um, and, and, you know, so many other 
uh, films that he's done that have been very but, well received. But not a lot of them are about ducks. Uh, no, this is this is a landmark for him. <laughs> Migration is in wide release, and it's directed by Benjamin Rene Gillahomsey. Mike White is the uh, screenwriter. It's rated PG, and again, you can see it throughout Southern California. Coming up on Film Week, we'll hear what our critics have to say about the sports biographical drama The Iron Claw, starring Zach Efron, the musical version of The Color Purple, which is out and uh, directed by Blitz uh, Bazawoli. Uh, we'll also hear about Ferrari, which is directed by Michael Mann and stars Adam Driver as Enzo Ferrari. That's coming up on Film Week with our critics. Joining us are Charles Solomon, Manuel Betancourt, and Amy Nicholson. We'll be back in just a few minutes. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. Larry Mantle with critics Manuel Betancourt, Amy Nicholson, and Charles Solomon. Next up, the sports biographical drama The Iron Claw, starring Zac Efron and Jeremy Allen White. Sean Durkin is the writer-director. Manuel, please tell us whose life is being portrayed here. So this is the film focused on the Von Erich um, wrestling family that are sort of quite legendary because their father was huge in, in the wrestling um, arena. And then the his sons, all of them eventually sort of uh, worked their way up. And so this is sort of like a very all-American saga and it's a sports drama. Um, it's also focused on the curse of the Von Erichs. Because um, if you know anything about the Von Erichs, which I did not do, I but now I do after this, uh, they are marred by tragedy over and over again. Uh, and I won't spoil it because I think it, it sort of does build um, throughout the film. But it's also a film about an overbearing father truly expecting a lot of his sons about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a wrestler, uh, and what it means to be a Von Erich. And he can be very tough on his kids and it hardens them. Um, in in ways that they find quite wounding and sort of we're following, um, you know, Durkin sort of creates this kind of like Greek tragedy-esque um, story and narrative for them where like they're quite, uh, they're about to sort of be really successful and then a tragedy strikes and then another tragedy strikes and then another tragedy and sort of it, it becomes a little bit overwhelming and at the heart of it is Zac Efron, uh, who you may know from, you know, the High School Musical films or Neighbors um, and he's truly transformed and he has sort of this like chiseled physique and he's really inhabiting um, the this Von Erich wrestler who can never quite live up to his father's um, image or uh, idea of himself and the punishing way that he tries to sort of move through the world. Um, it has a lot to say about masculinity and about family and about brotherhood and about um, how it is that we can sort of harden ourselves and lose part of ourselves when we're doing um, all of these things. Uh, but to me, it, it ended up being a little bit hollow. But Efron gives it his all. He's also joined by Jeremy Allen White, who you might know from from The Bear, playing yeah, another Von so Eric. Good. He's so good. And the wrestling scenes. And I will say this, as someone who is not a big fan of wrestling, like Durkin really immerses you in this world about um, how the fine line between what's real and what's not real in wrestling and how it's a sport, but it's also a competition, but it's also a performance. Uh, 
it, that has all really interestingly sort of knotted together in in the storyline. We should mention this is professional wrestling. Yes, so professional. this is this is the choreograph. This is not like college. Right. No, there's there's capes and there's characters and uh, sort of there's a lot of um, a lot of really weird looking singlets and a lot of weird looking haircuts. <laughs> <laughs> sounds sounds fascinating. The Iron Claw is rated R, written and directed by Sean Durkin. It's in wide release. The Color Purple, the musical version of uh, the production, stars Taraji P. Henson, Danielle Brooks, Coleman Domingo, Corey Hawkins, Her, Halle Bailey, um, Felicia Pearl, and Posse, uh, and the film is directed by Blitz Bazo Wule. Uh, Amy, what did you think of this new version of The Color Purple? This is a tricky one. This is a really tricky one. I mean, this is a powerful story that has undergone a kind of rather a natural mutation it feels like from tragic novel to tragic movie to splashy stage musical to even splashier movie musical you know it it has this kind of glitz that kind of contrasts with sort of the heart of like Alice Walker's story which was this you know tragedy of a woman named Seely who has been abused her whole life in really horrific ways um and then finally in the second half of the film kind of finds empowerment through this community of a woman of women and they build each other up and now there's like splasher musicals that seem to make a lot more sense than the first act where you're like this is so miserable and everybody is singing and what is happening um it's 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 a weird time for this movie to come out it's kind of it's a hard time you know the movie american fiction that just came out a couple uh, weeks ago sort of a shot an elbow at films like this where it's like can we get past a period of telling stories about the black experience that only hinge on race and suffering and it's also a tricky time because this movie, I think, really needs to appeal to, like, the church community. And so a major subplot um, involving, like, you know, a queer relationship is also kind of downplayed as much as it can be in, in this version of the film. So a lot of people are going to come into this and sort of walk away unhappy. But that said, there are moments in here that I think do have a lot of zip. The main woman who plays um, Celia is Fantasia Barino. She won American Idol oh, in yeah. its early incarnation. Great voice. Powerhouse voice, powerhouse performance. There's a lot of performances in here that I do think are going to get a lot of like awards attention, particularly Danielle Brooks. She has kind of that like really crowd-pleasing role as like a woman who comes in sort of like completely like a, 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 a barrel of energy, you know, and you love watching that character and you really root for her. There's some dance numbers in here also that I do think have fun with the staging. Like Corey Hawkins, he plays one of the the younger terrible men. Um, he has a great bit where he's like dancing around with wooden planks. There's moments in here that also remind me of like my favorite film, Pennies from Heaven, where they kind of go inside black and white movies and they sing and they kiss. And there's a lot of vintage staged razzle dazzle. Um but boy, is this a lot of movie. Boy, is this a lot of movie. <laughs> uh, Manuel, you're responding similarly. I, I, it, it is so much movie. And it's also, um, it's just trying to cover so much ground. Like Walker's novel, it's sort of so expansive. And, you know, it, it's it's decades that you're following Seeley. And the movie just needs to keep going. So it's like, and then the next summer, and the next summer, and the next summer. And it, sometimes it feels like you just want it to slow down. And sometimes when it does slow down, it can be very moving. And it can be very, very affecting. But then it'll... Then it has to do a dance number, and then it has to do, and the, the tonal changes are so jarring sometimes. And there's a kernel of a great movie, I think, hidden underneath. And you know, for anything, for anyone who I think saw the Broadway revival that starred Cynthia Erivo a few years ago and Danielle Brooks, um, 
it was pared down and there was a way in which they were able to sort of really bring Walker's novel and marry it to the sort of like kind of sort of performance space. But the movie needs to go big and loud. Uh, and at times it works really well. And at others, it's just you're you're just wondering what is happening. Um, but those performances. Uh, it's a lot of talent. It's a screen. lot of talent. Taraji P. Henson, who so rarely gets to do this kind of like so many people don't know that she's a trained singer and that she can do this sort of in her sleep and she's taking such joy in performing uh, this character. Um, so I think, you know, if you love the musical or if you love the novel or if you love any of these people, I think you're going to have a great time, uh, even if it doesn't all quite sort of come gel together as, as well as it could. All right. We're talking about The Color Purple, the musical version adapted from the stage production, itself adapted from the film, which, as Amy laid out, was adapted, of course, from Alice Walker's novel. The film is directed by Blitz Bazawule, and it's rated PG-13. Uh, Christmas 2023 wide release opening of the film. Ferrari, a wide release Christmas Eve opening of the Michael Mann directed film written by Troy Kennedy Martin starring Adam Driver as Enzo Ferrari, Penelope Cruz and Shailene Woodley lead the cast. Manuel, what'd you think of Ferrari? Ferrari is like two great films that they collide and they don't quite work as one great film. Because uh, I think on the one hand, uh, Michael Mann is trying to tell this like marital drama between Ferrari uh, and his wife, played by Penelope Cruz, who basically steals the movie. Like She is a, a fiery performer who can just give you this kind of scorned woman who is, is trying to deal with the grief of having lost a son and how that's affecting their marriage. So you have this sort of like marital drama here, but you also have a sports racing drama where you have Ferrari uh, needing to win this 1977 um, race in order to sort of um, correct, like set up his business so that it can do um, better. And the two movies quite literally collide in a moment that will audibly make you gasp. Like I have not had that experience with many films where I think I'm watching a film and I'm sitting down and you know, it's it's a racing and then something happens that actually made me audibly gasp because I, I could not, I, it just, it's so, and maybe you know the story of what happened in 1957 in that, in that race, but I was blindsided and you know, man is a great director and he really notches up that tension. I don't know if these two films sort of quite, quite work together but there are so many pieces mostly Penelope that you're just you can't take your eyes off of her set in 1957 Enzo Ferrari's story we're talking about Ferrari Amy yeah, I mean, the film does take a, a while to get going this idea of it being sort of two movies fused into one it felt kind of like a it reminded me of when I used to live in colder areas and you're trying to start the engine on a really frozen day. I mean, the early scenes are just a lot of people standing around in cemeteries as you get to understand all of the people who have already died. Um, there's a lot of, of doom and gloom and you're sort of staring at Adam Driver who plays um, Ferrari, especially in the early scenes. It's just like the ultimate cool customer, kind of hiding behind sunglasses, not putting out a lot of emotion, you know, being very much at like kind of a removed distance. I mean, it's funny. Some Italians are mad that Adam Driver, you know, a non-Italian, is playing Ferrari. But I was very thrown off that Adam Driver, who is around 40, is playing a 60-year-old man with gray hair and ridiculous wrinkles. And you sort of want to say, did we have to do that? Couldn't we just find an actual 60-year-old man? It, there's no reason. He's not jumping around in time that much. It's, it's very strange and kind of took me a while to get into the movie that way. 
Um, but yeah, when it gets going, it definitely does get going. And Penelope Cruz just steals this movie because this is a character who's dealing with her husband who, you know, not only is he cheating on her r- relentlessly and rather remorselessly, um, she is an owner in the company. She's got all of these different competing loyalties and she wants the company to do good. How much does she want him to do good? And the way these loyalties sort of stack up inside of her, she does it so well. Yeah, it sounds like tremendous acting. Michael Mann directing. Troy Kennedy Martin wrote the screenplay of Ferrari, starring Adam Driver and Penelope Cruz. It's rated R, Christmas Eve opening of the film in wide release. Coming up, we'll hear about the German drama The Teacher's Lounge, uh, the film Society of the Snow, about a 1972 plane crash and a fight to survive, and we'll hear about the romantic comedy Anyone But You, among other films coming up right here on Film Week. It's Film Week on L.A. is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Charles Solomon Amy Nicholson and Manuel Betancourt, they've been telling us about this huge week in films. You know, the last two weeks of 2023 are seeing some of the biggest releases that we have all year. Many of these films vying in their Oscar qualification runs to be included in the Oscars to be handed out next year. And that gives us a chance to talk about uh, some real cream rising to the crop uh, top at the end of the year. And um, we're hearing from our critics about not just American films, but uh, one's international as well. And that's our next one, The Teacher's Lounge from Germany, a drama that stars Leonie Beanish uh, and Michael Klammer. The film is directed by Ilker uh, Chatak and is written by Johannes Dunker and, uh, and Katak, uh, Chatak, the director as well. Amy, please start us off on The Teacher's Lounge. I will. This is a film that I could definitely see making an awards run. It's it's very fun and very score-worthy. It's, it's a real microcosm of idealism and arguments and struggle and fights and honesty and truth and everything just going wrong when you're really trying to be fair and reasonable. (laughs) The story here is that you have kind of a young and idealistic teacher working at a school and the school is being beset by theft problems. And everybody behind the scenes is not quite sure how to handle this. Some people want to shake down and interrogate kids. The movie opens with like kind of a, a pretty harsh interrogation of some two young kids trying to see if they can get them to rat on their classmates. And our teacher, you know, who's, who's played by uh, Leonie ben- Bench, she really takes like kind of a kinder, gentler approach. She wants everybody to feel respected. And in doing so, she starts down this path that really just winds up with her getting punched in the face. It is a crazy, crazy, crazy film that way. Um, the it, I kind of kept thinking as I was watching this, like this would make a great double feature with Election. You know? Oh yeah, right. Which is Election. It sounds like yeah, yeah. Election, such a great film. That movie holds up so well. By the way, in fact, I think it's more prescient than <laughs> ever. Um, and I wonder if this one will feel the same way because what you're having in here is kind of these same conversations about what what is the role of ethics in schools? Can we actually be reasonable? Because as the situation goes further and the school kind of divides into factions of how this problem of thievery should be resolved, how the people who are accused of the thievery should be punished, whether they've been punished too much or not enough. Everyone is sort of yelling that they have rights. Everyone is making demands and everything is just getting worse and worse and worse. We're talking about the teacher's lounge, a German drama. The way you're describing sounds like there could be some openings for sort of dark comedy. Is there any of that in there? I think so. It's it's almost, almost, not quite 
teetering towards the, the, the train of like the office or okay, something like yeah. that. But nobody looks yeah. at the camera. If it's so at the absurd camera, that, yeah. Then you'd have the office. <laughs> the teacher's lounge. Manuel, what do you think? Yeah, this is fantastic because it, uh, as Amy describes it, at every moment you end up yelling, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. You're, you're not supposed to do that. Or like, oh, that's not what she was hoping that would happen. Because at every point she thinks she's, She's trying to make principled decisions and decisions that uh, sort of are in line with the kind of ethics that she wants to model for her students. And at every turn, it just ends up making everything worse. And of course, you sometimes would understand that if you're dealing with just adults who are sort of, you know, you have the administration, you have the faculty, and you have her herself, and she's a little bit of a, she's a new teacher. So there's a little bit of like an outsider nest and she's trying to fit in, but she also wants to um, be cool with the students and have her respect her. Um, but of course, as soon as it's sort of like a powder keg, as soon as it starts, everything just devolves. Um, and there's a lot of really incredibly nuanced and thorny talk about racism and discrimination and bias and how even as you're trying to be aware of your blinds, blind spots you keep sort of messing up uh and then i don't know it's it's so fascinating and you really don't know where it's going and it's kind of nerve-wracking the entire time as you're talking about saying no no i think we should do a whole set what are the films where you end up talking <laughs> back to the characters the most because i i've had that experience to myself don't do that and of course they do yeah of course they do. and in this one in this one it's even toward the final moments you're just like oh god and it's 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 both bleak and hopeful at the same time because there is hope in that like oh there are people who are trying to always do the right thing uh and also enough people who really don't even know what right can look like or they think they know it's right, right. i got really caught up in a little detail here a little subplot of the kids who run a newspaper and they're really yelling about freedom of the press, which I want to be so much online with. But here I was like, I don't know, kids. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it sounds captivating. The Teacher's Lounge, drama from Germany. Uh, the film is directed by uh, and co-written by Ilker Chatak. It's rated PG-13 and you can see The Teacher's Lounge uh, starting Christmas Day at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. Society of the Snow takes us back to 1972. The Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 chartered to fly a rugby team to Chile, and it catastrophically crashes on a glacier in the heart of the Andes. Only 29 of the 45 passengers survive the crash, and then they find themselves trying to survive in this hostile environment. The film is directed and co-written by J.A. Bayona. Manuel, what did you think of Society of the Snow? I mean, when you look at the logline, I think you know exactly what kind of movie you're getting, right? This is a survival drama uh, set in some of the most harshest weather you can imagine and the kind of most psychologically numbing uh, sort of circumstances you could even think of. This is a tough film. It's a it's not for the faint of heart and, and I'm not <laughs> and it is but it is so what I found it was I was most surprised by how much I was engaged because you think oh I know what happened oh you know this is a two and a half hour movie they're gonna crash there's gonna be a lot of like uh, snow and cold and fighting to see how we survive uh, and if you've seen yellow jackets you may have an inkling of what also happened in order so they could survive for you know weeks and weeks on end uh, but Bayona is such a strong director that he's really uh, creates really gripping scenes both when he's doing those like big action moments like an avalanche coming but he's also really great at 
bringing a humanity and a decency uh, to every single one of his characters. Uh, these are all real people. These are all real names. Uh, he worked, him and his team worked really closely with all of the survivors, trying to really honor their story and truly honor the story of those who didn't make it. So there are moments when um, as soon as a plane crashes, for example, you then see names on the screen of the people who died and their their ages. These are all 20, mostly 20 something year olds. Uh, so they're sort of thrown in trying to figure out how to survive and how to be a team. And they're a rugby team. So they're always looking to their to their leader. Um, it's gripping, uh, but it's again, it's 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 a tough watch. Understandably, Society of the Snow, which by the way is Spain's entry for consideration for the upcoming Oscars. Amy, yeah, honor definitely feels like the keyword that was driving this movie. You know, so much of the film is just looking at these young actors, most of them, you know, unknowns, first time films, second time films, um, just their faces. That I don't understand even how he got this like haunted bedraggled scrawny like suffering look in their faces but it gives you a lot of time to kind of soak it in the, the film is very straightforward and very earnest and you know if this at all sounds familiar to people as like the movie alive that was like the version of it that was made yeah. in the 90s starring like ethan hawk and there is something more moving about seeing this performed by people who are actually performing in spanish who are like a lot more authentic to the character and and it does of course go I think the the trickiest part of it is it knows that there's it knows what the most famous part of this story is. It knows what fascinates people. It knows what they ate to survive. And it shows you the wriggly bits of flesh. But it wants to kind of also make sure it has enough time to have conversations about everything that that means and to try to really understand how hard it was. And it ends kind of at an interesting point because there was a moment when they got back and the and it kind of this their story was sort of told in full where people really panicked and got sort of upset but he ends it here at the point of just like we're glad they're home and it feels like that's the story he really wants to tell society of the snow spanish film directed and co-written by j.a bayona the film's rated r you can see it in select theaters and then it'll start streaming on netflix on january 4th we continue with our year-end film week here on Alayas 89.3. Our trio of critics has several more movies to review when we come back in just a moment. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us as we close out 2023 with the final edition of Film Week. And I'm joined by critics Manuel Betancourt, 
Charles Solomon and Amy Nicholson. Up next is the romantic comedy Anyone But You. It's directed by Will Gluck, who co-wrote the screenplay with Alana Wolpert, Sidney Sweeney, and Glenn Powell star. Amy, what did you think of Anyone But You? This is a rom-com that I was really, really, really rooting for and left feeling kind of let down. Um, the cast here, our two lovers, are Sydney Sweetie. You know, she, I think, is one of the most kind of interesting young talents who's been rising right now. And then Glenn Powell, who's also kind of one of her counterparts. Like, you might recognize him probably from Top Gun 2. Um, he also was in a really good rom-com a few years ago called Set It Up. So I was very excited for this movie. There are allegations that they, like, maybe broke up with their partners making it because they had such chemistry on the Always set. Always asked the publicity of side of a film. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then here they are playing this couple that's sort of enduring what seems like a modern update of Much Ado About Nothing. You know, just the part of the Shakespeare play where these two people argue so much that all their friends around them are trying to get them to fall in love just so they'll stop being such absolute pains. Um, <clears throat> the background here is sort of strange. Like the setup is that they meet cute trying to get a bathroom key at a coffee shop. You know, it's kind of as meet cutes go, it's mm -hmm. a little bit. It's a little bit body and scatological, um, but then they have a lovely night, and in the morning for this just sort of convenient pretext that really doesn't make sense, it should be very, very easy to straighten out, they decide that they absolutely hate each other, but because they are both friends with this couple who's getting married, they wind up in Australia at this destination wedding, making everybody's life miserable, setting things on fire, screaming and yelling, and just insulting each other in so many creative ways that you think you could just have a simple conversation, and this movie would be a lot shorter. Um, the movie, when it gets goofy, I found myself wanting to really root for it. There's kind of this runner in the film where there's no problem that can't be solved by the people just taking off their clothes for no reason. You know, this happens repeatedly. At one point when there is a fire, somebody just strips off her dress and uses it to batten down the flames. And you think in those moments the movie is maybe knowing enough that it's really going to have some fun here. But it's also directed in kind of such an honestly inept fashion that I found myself being completely confused. I couldn't tell how much time had gone by since their first meet cute. I spent most of the movie thinking that they hadn't hooked up the first time they met because he opens their morning after shot with like a, a clip of her like belt buckle firmly buckled in bed, which I thought was the international symbol of nothing happened. Yeah, yeah. But they talk about it like something did. So I was just very confused the whole way through. Um, I think if it was a little dumber, I would have really liked this more. <laughs> We're talking about anyone but you. Rated R, it's in wide release. Time Bomb Y2K, a documentary that takes us back to the start of the 21st century. It's uh, uh, produced by HBO Documentaries and directed by Brian Becker and Marley McDonald. Charles, what do you think of this doc? I found it very puzzling. It was clearly made by younger filmmakers who were fascinated by, like, old monitors that had the big all the structure in the back of it and the much simpler graphics that were available uh, in the late 1990s and the cruder games and the more limited resources. And there was the whole panic, uh, though I don't think it was as major as they portray it, of would Y2K, would everything not reset itself properly when we got to um, you know a year that didn't start with 19? They talked to survivalists. They talked to crackpot revivalists. They talked to some experts and some maybe not so expert experts about all of this. But 
you know nothing happened. So it becomes kind of like documenting those periodic uh, fundamentalist revivals where they announce the world will end on such and such a time and the followers go out and sell their property and get into winding sheets and sit on the roofs of their houses. And then, of course, the next day just starts like any other. Or when people were so concerned that the Mayan calendar was coming to the end of its period and it wasn't just going to be Mayans misdating their checks, this was also going to be the end of the world. Nothing happens. So it's to Slow being Shakespearean, but you do about <laughs> nothing. Uh, time bomb Y2K Manuel. I maybe this is maybe this is generational, Charles, because I, I I lived through. Oh, you're not that much older I than know. I am. Because <laughs> to me, this was so. This is a documentary mostly made of archival news footage. So it's all spliced together of news broadcasts that begin, I think, in sort of like '96, all the way through you know December 31st, 1999. And so you're watching ABC News and NBC News and documentaries of the era. And you're sort of slowly seeing how Y2K sort of begins with this sort of like fear mongering, like what's going to happen? The world's going to end to even in the hours ahead uh, when news when you have Brian Williams actually on air saying we are all trying to downplay the panic of what may happen tonight. So to me, the documentary, which is a little... Um, it does feel like it's made for those who did not live through this, um, like both Charles and I did, um, <laughs> uh, to sort of understand and it's sort of a media study uh, as a way of how we were trying to think of the millennium and how it really felt at the time that this was going to be a turning point. And of course, the fact that you're getting uh, news about Putin getting into power and people being afraid of Osama bin Laden and the 2000 election coming up, and these are sort of sprinkled in between, you sort of get a sense that the the film really wants you to really remember a time <laughs> before a lot of things happened. Uh, well, yeah, and there's a, lot, there's a lot of footage of uh, Bill Clinton and Al Gore yeah. doing things like installing uh, new computer equipment in schools and talking about different issues. And then there's a, a quick shot of uh, W uh, towards the end of it when he's won the election or won the Supreme Court. Uh, but again, since you know it doesn't happen, I felt that was like you're trying to build up suspense, but you know there's no murder. <laughs> but it sounds like as a media study, at least, it is kind of interesting. Although I'd say, you know, if people had been listening to air talk at that time, they wouldn't have lost sleep. <laughs> well, you'll, this, you'll we, notice we, we weren't included in this, Larry. <laughs> you would have, it would have been yeah, very low key. It's like, well, you know, here's why people are overstating this. Time Bomb Y2K, the documentary is streaming on Max starting on December 30th. It's unrated, directed by Brian Becker and Marley McDonald. Memory, a film that stars Jessica Chastain, Peter Sarsgaard, and Brooke Timber. Uh, Michelle Franco is the writer and director of the film. Uh, it's a drama. Manuel, what'd you think of Memory? I'm very mixed, very mixed on Memory. I, I love both of these actors. Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard are some of the greatest talents of their generation. And here they're giving very, very complex and complicated uh, humans to inhabit. So she's this sort of single mother uh, social worker who lives um, in New York City and has a very tough and demanding job um, dealing with uh, people with disabilities. And uh, Sarsgaard plays this man's soul who's grappling with dementia. And uh, if I told you that and also told you this is a modern romantic drama, uh, you would have maybe a hard time sort of imagining how those two things sort of um, come together. But that's what Franco is creating. He's sort of creating a very adult, very dour 
kind of rom-com that has no calm um just because it's very it's very dramatic and it goes to very very dark spaces as a lot of his films um tend to go um it doesn't quite go as violent as his his other films have gone but this goes to very very dark emotional territory and it is hard to sort of follow through um with how these two characters are grappling with these lives that uh and these memories and these pasts that they're sort of trying to both escape and cannot live without um it's a hard movie to to talk about without revealing a lot because i think it really depends on yeah because it really depends you really want to be following through how their relationship sort of blooms and what that might mean um to how they've sort of made themselves live move through the world how's the chemistry but i mean they're both great actors how's the chemistry the chemistry is it's pretty great and and i think franco it does a really good job of really making you this feel like a really authentic sort of humane um, sort of story. And a lot of that has to do with the two of them. Sarsgaard won um, the the Best Actor Award at Venice this past year because of it. And it is a really um, calibrated, really um, beautiful performance. And Jessica Chastain nominated for Best Lead Performance at the Independent Spirit Awards. Memory, Amy. Yeah, I'm mixed on it too. In its own way, it is one of those kind of showy movies but showy in a style that's done very like gray and ordinary and drab but you could tell the actors are like working their hearts out to really hope that they're getting awards recognition here I mean in a way this movie kind of neatly lines up in places that I thought were sort of almost too tidy you know that kind of the thrust of it is that he is a man who can't remember anything you know or remembers things very spottily and she's a woman who's living with such trauma you know that goes kind of unspecified for a while but we really see the signs of it you know her fear she locks the doors all light she's an alcoholic she's in sobriety you know, um, sessions all the time she takes that very very seriously you know something happened to her when she was young that her family just sort of wishes she'd forget and so this kind of collision of like the man who can't remember and the woman who's holding on to too much of the past you know it has a kind of neat and tidy yin and yang feel, but then from there the film gets like very blurry because it does sort of get into questions of, you know, consent, um, of of crossing the lines, of blur of of blurring boundaries. And what I sort of felt frustrated by this just at the ending is it kind of ends a little bit inconclusively. It like raises a bunch of questions and then sort of bunts them. But I will say the thing that the film really does well is it it's come up with a very good part for um, the actress who is playing her daughter, her teen daughter, who's really at that pivotal age where she's understanding that life in her home is not quite ordinary, but she doesn't know what other adults she can trust to sort of give her a better life. You know, she's filled with a lot of empathy, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration. And that part is just really, really well done. I feel like so much of the of the heart of this movie is just in that young character and her reactions to this very strange romance that's happening. We're talking about the film Memory, starring Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard. It's unrated, and it's at AMC's Century City 15. And the George Clooney-directed uh, film The Boys in the Boat, uh, set in the 1930s, the University of Washington's rowing team, uh, which is pointed toward the 36 Berlin Olympics. Joel Edgerton and Callum Turner star Mark L. Smith wrote the screenplay under Clooney's direction. Amy? Yeah, this is a very old-fashioned story about a true story, you know, that actually happened. The, you know, the University of Washington rowing team, the junior varsity 
University of Washington rowing team did manage to row all the way to the 1936 Olympics. There's a tiny bit of a misdirect here happening with the trailer. You know, if you saw the trailer, it's lots of shots of the Olympics, of Berlin. You know, there's Hitler in this movie kind of dramatically pounding his fist and being very engaged in rowing competitions. But the heart of the movie, the thing that Clooney is most interested in, is telling a story that's really about class in, here in America, class in a moment that's still very much suffering from the Great Depression, where you know the boys of this crew team are kind of working class state school kids who are only rowing to pay for college. You know, our main character, I must play by Callum Turner. You know, he wakes up, started the film in a in a Hooverville. You know, ever since his dad left to find work when he was a young teen. And so it tells the story of this particular kind of team going up against like the more ivied monies or California here, Cal State, um, in trying to prove that, you know, working class boys can come together as a team as well. I mean, it's really done in just that classic, classic way of like sentimental music and clunky dialogue and, you know, beautiful golden shots of the sun hitting the water just so. And I found myself kind of frustrated that like a lot of the ideas this movie is trying to talk about the themes don't really seem to register. You know, there's a lot of talk in here about unity, about eight men coming into one. But I didn't really see how that happened. And most of the characters are kind of the strong type who don't really talk anyways. And only a few really register as individuals. Um, But the film, really... Like, what it has is it has um, probably more applause, more shots of applause than any movie I've seen of anything this year. I mean, movies, like, there's a scene here where, like, you really understand the excitement of people listening to regattas on the radio, which was kind of a newer technology at the time. Like, they say, you know... 300 million people listen to the live broadcast from Berlin and it really feels like Clooney cuts to every single one of them, <laughs> you know, and he has spared no cost. Uh, he has spared no expense in the production design. I mean, the pennant budget, the pennant budget of just a little things waving in the air was huge. We're talking about The Boys in the Boat, directed by George Clooney, starring Joel Edgerton and Callum Turner, Manuel. Yeah, I, I keep thinking of this as a beautiful postcard of a movie, uh, the kind that reminds you that you just had to be there. Um, but I'm just going to send you this postcard in case you want to find out because uh, it looks beautiful. It sounds beautiful. And I think to, to Amy's point, this is I mean, the title is called The Boys in the Boat, but you're really only following one boy. And I think structurally, then that undercuts a lot of this message that the film is trying to create that is about team building, that is about we can come all together. But if you're just following one story, and one man, and he's supposed to stand in for the team. You're you're sort of creating an individual story about a about a group. Uh, in this, um, from what I hear, the non the the book is actually a much more robust retelling, and it really follows all of the all of the boys in the boat, not just the one boy in the boat. Um, but yeah, it's it's it, it beautiful beautiful, but off, often um, very empty. And yeah, you end up sort of cheering for the boys, but also in this case, if you know that they won gold, you sort of um, you know where you're going. <laughs> Boys in the Boat is the film that's rated PG-13, wide release starting on Christmas Eve. In the couple of minutes we have left, I wanted to ask each of, of you just sort of briefly how you think 2023 has stacked up as a film year. Charles, let me start with you on the animation front. What do you think? Well, a very erratic year. We had... Uh, Super Mario Brothers setting a record for all-time animated films and a number of the uh, Japanese films broke records with Slam Dunk and one of the uh, One Piece films. And we had some really, really interesting films from, of course, Miyazaki, 
from Shinkai. We had uh, Chicken for Linda that was a surprise that's been winning a lot of prizes and is charming. Uh, Robot Dreams has done very well. But then the, what we would ordinarily think of as the tent poles have not done well. You know, Wish was a critical disaster and didn't make the any Disney money. Disney animated film. Nobody went to DreamWorks' Ruby Gilman. Uh, even the, the Ninja Turtles, as good a movie as that was, didn't really do as well as comparable to something like Spider-Verse. So an erratic year in my top 10 had only nine in it. Wow. All right. <laughs> Manuel, uh, briefly, your thoughts about the, how this stacks up to other films, other, other years. Well, yeah, I mean, this uh, even just the fact that we get to talk about this here in terms of Barbenheimer, uh, I think does speak to a kind of like the return to the movies, which is a story that everyone's been trying to tell since, uh, you know, COVID happened and they, and you do feel it. And I do love thinking of the year on the one end, having like Greta Gerwig's like Pink Fantasia and on the other having Nolan's sort of um, atomic musings. Uh, and I do think that there is, when you think of those two films and you think of them as, as sort of encompassing, there's a lot of range, and I did I found everything in between. Yeah, it's a very wide-ranging year. Amy, a quick closing comment Yeah, from I you? think it's going to be an interesting year in the future, not so much even for the films themselves, but for what we're seeing in this big shift of, like, the tent poles collapsing and of people figuring out what makes, what makes movies work after that. But I do come into this year with, like, a lot of optimism, you know, because what I see on the grounds, not even just in the movie theaters, but in the revival houses, packed houses, younger people, they are going to movies. I just want to see some ambitious stuff that really matches that. Speaking of shots of people applauding, we should do it <laughs> for that. Hey, thank you all so much. It's been a pleasure as it is every year. And we'll be back with a brand new film week on the first week of January. My thanks to our critics joining us this week. Manuel Betancourt, Amy Nicholson, and Charles Solomon. From all of us at Film Week, have a wonderful weekend. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.